chapter. Matthew wrote this under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that you would, by the power of your spirit, direct and guide Pastor Steve as he expounds upon the word. Father, I I pray that what would be preached would not be the opinions of mere mortal men, but we'd be guided and directed by the Spirit of God so that we may hear you this morning. And I pray that Steve would decrease and you would increase and fill our vision and help us to understand the Word of God, and to believe the Word of God, and to love it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. There were a couple of men who were walking down a road after a very interesting week. Matter of fact, it had turned into a very bad week for them. They were walking down the road discussing just all the events that had happened uh, from about a week ago. You see, a week ago, a man came into town whom they thought was their Messiah, whom they assumed was their Messiah. He came in with great fanfare. A parade was held as he came into town. And these two men, they believed that this was their Messiah. They had put all their hope in this man, this carpenter from Nazareth, being their Messiah. It had been a wonderful week. Lots of amazing things had happened that week. And just hearing this man teach... That in and of itself was, was an amazing thing. But then miracles on top of that. And, but then all of a sudden it turned south. The whole week seemed to sour on Friday. Because on Friday, the leaders of the Jewish people and the Roman authorities took this man whom they assumed was going to be their Messiah. And they crucified him. And they killed him. And so now these two men are walking three days after this event has occurred, 
on a road to a city called Emmaus. And they're dejected. They're down. They're disheartened. And as they're talking about these things, a, a man walks up to them. A stranger walks up to them and begins to ask them, well, what are you talking about? What, what's all these things that you're talking about? Perhaps with a semi-incredulous look, they look at this man and say, where have you been? Are you not aware of everything that's been going on in Jerusalem? And the man says, well, tell me, what's, what's going on? And so they explain to this, this stranger that all that had happened during the week and all of their expectations for this, this Jesus who had come into town a week before. And then they go on to explain how he had died. And then on top of that, they say, some of our women from our group went to anoint the body this morning. And when they got to the tomb, it was empty. And they said they saw an angelic vision saying that he had risen. Some of the other disciples also went and checked it out, and they found the tomb empty, but they saw no one. And so, as they share these things, obviously, they don't believe them. They're on a road away from Jerusalem. They're not headed into the tomb. And so this stranger looks at them and says, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then, that man, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, interpreted to them all the scriptures concerning himself. And as I listened to this man speak, their hearts began to, to just burst aflame with, with passion and joy and and so they get to their destination, and they want this man to keep talking to them like this. And so they say, come on, come eat with us. Come, come stay here tonight. So the man says, yes, I'll, I'll do that. I'll come stay with you. And he continues to expound the scriptures to them and demonstrate to them that all of these things that they had just witnessed had to happen. And as they sit down to eat, he takes bread and he breaks the bread. And the moment he breaks the bread... Their eyes are open to see who it is who's been expounding the scriptures to them. It's none other than Jesus himself. And at that moment, Jesus disappears. And of course, we know the story of the road to Emmaus, these two men. But what we find in that story, the main focus of that story, is that Jesus himself wanted them to see and savor Jesus in the scriptures. Of course, the scriptures were the Old Testament scriptures. It's all they had. And Jesus wants them to see that everything that's happened, every single detail of his life was a fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. And Matthew, in today's text, wants us to see the exact same thing. He wants our hearts to burn with the same passion that these guys' hearts burned with as we see and savor Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. See and Savor Jesus Christ, that's the title of our series, Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ. You may be, if you're visiting with us this morning, you may be wondering why we're reading this passage of Scripture. It seems to be more connected to the, to the Christmas stories and the birth stories of Jesus. And so why here in the middle of the summer are we preaching from a text that's normally reserved for the end of the year? Well, first of all, I believe that that's a shame that we reserve the glorious 
text regarding the incarnation for only one time of the year. But secondly, what we're doing in this series, Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ, is we're walking through the life of Jesus Christ. Every event of his life. And we're going basically harmonizing the Gospels here and walking, looking at different passages in the different Gospels as we walk through a chronologically ordered, uh, the chronological order of Jesus' life. And the purpose behind that is that we'll see and savor Jesus Christ. Because I believe, and Deemer and I prayed about this and felt the Lord leading us to this series, we believe that if we'll see and savor Jesus Christ, we'll become passionate worshipers of Jesus Christ. And so in today's text, Matthew is taking us back to the Old Testament and showing us how some of these details in Jesus' life are fulfillments of Old Testament texts. And when I think about that, uh, the illustration that came to my mind that kind of helped the kids connect with this is an illustration of a, of a connect the dots or a dot to dot picture. Now I handed out some of these to some of the kids prior to the service just so they'd have some of these dot to dots. Now... A good dot-to-dot is a dot-to-dot kind of like this one. You can kind of picture what's, what it is, and you kind of see it. And, but you've got to connect the dots in order to get the full picture, right? I saw some pretty lame dot-to-dots last night as I was looking for some. I mean, I saw one. I went to a, trying to look for Christian connect the dots. Apparently, that's a, an area where they need more ministry. So if anyone here feels called into Christian dot-to-dot ministry, there's not much out there. So... I was looking for it, and there was one that was a cross, but like the whole thing was drawn except for just one little section. I'm thinking, what good is that? If I already know what it is, I don't want to fill out the dot to dot. That's silly. A good dot to dot gives you some hints because some of the lines are, are filled in. And you kind of have a good picture of what it is, but you don't really see the picture until you connect all the dots. And you're like, aha, that's what it is. And so when we think about the Old Testament, the Old Testament foreshadowed and spoke of and and prophesied about the coming Messiah. But in a lot of ways, it was concealed to a certain degree. It was hard for them to see what was there. So in faith, they looked forward to the Messiah, but they didn't see all the details. They didn't see how it was all coming together. But then Jesus comes and he lives, and every detail of his life is like one of these dots. And the New Testament is all about filling in those dots so we can see and savor the full picture of who Jesus really is and how he is the absolute fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. In the text that Deemer read today, we have Matthew connecting some Old Testament dots for us. And this has kind of become his pattern. In the first two chapters of Matthew, this is his pattern. Five times in these first two chapters, Matthew refers to a specific event in Jesus' life as a fulfillment of the Old Testament. In chapter 1, verse 22, and then in chapter 2, verse 5, and then three times in today's text, in verse 15, verse 17, and verse 23. Matthew wants us to see and savor Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of all the Old Testament scriptures. So these are not just random events that Matthew is recording to give us a good story. It is a good story. It's a dramatic story. But Matthew has chosen the events. He's been inspired by the Holy Spirit to put these events on paper to show us how the Old Testament points to Jesus Christ and ultimately finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Now, kind of as a parenthetical note this morning, let me say there are three ways we see in the New Testament that the Old Testament is fulfilled. Three different ways, and this is all throughout the New Testament. When you see the Scriptures talking about this was to fulfill, or there, it, it usually means one of these three senses. First of all, there is direct fulfillment. 
And we see them all here in Matthew's uh, first two chapters. There's direct fulfillment, like in chapter 2, verse 6, when Micah 5, 2 predicts that the Savior is going to be born where? In Bethlehem. That's a pretty direct fulfillment. I mean, when Herod's trying to figure it out, he outsources his spirituality to the priests and them. They come in and they tell him, oh, the, the, the Savior is going to be born in Bethlehem. It's a direct fulfillment of that prophecy. Then there's the second sense in which the prophecies are fulfilled in the New Testament. And that's a, a fuller sense type of fulfillment. What I mean by that is, is that the text in the Old Testament, the clear sense of it means this. But then now in the light of the New Testament, it has a greater meaning. It has a greater significance. An example of this is um, in, in, in here in, when Matthew refers to the virgin birth. Uh, the, the prophecy from Isaiah chapter 7, uh, verse 14, in the, the, that Matthew quotes in chapter 1, verse 22 and 23. But that prophecy um, was actually referring to an event that happened right then and there. There was a sign, a virgin giving birth, that was a sign to the king right then as that's being written by Isaiah. But it had a fuller meaning, a fuller sense in the coming of Jesus Christ. Then thirdly, there is a foreshadowing type of fulfillment. And by this, I mean simply... Things like the sacrifices, the temple, the priesthood, all of these things foreshadowed the coming of Jesus Christ. Therefore, they are fulfilled, they are, they are made real under Jesus Christ. They are made, they're no longer shadows, but we have the real thing in Jesus Christ. So those are the three ways that prophetic fulfillment happens in the New Testament. And this is important for us to understand because the Old Testament is not some, indispens- or not some dispensable or irrelevant part of the Scriptures. I think that's the way we treat it sometimes today. That this book here, we focus on the right side of the book, and the left side of the book is just a little confusing, and the God on the left side of the book seems a little harsh. And so let's just focus on the right side of the book, and we don't understand there's no right and left side of this book. The whole thing is one story pointing to Jesus Christ. One story. And so the Old Testament is not just some part of your Bible you can just forget about. So if you, if you have a Bible reading plan, and I encourage everyone to have a Bible reading plan, it needs to be a robust Bible reading plan that includes the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. Paul told Timothy that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So when we read passages like this in Matthew, it helps us to have a good, robust doctrine of Scripture. We don't just dismiss the parts that, well, we don't understand that much. Instead, we let the Holy Spirit teach us about Christ from the whole book. It's all one story, as I said. It's kind of like um, the New Testament is kind of like a, well, let me, let me just use this as kind of an illustration. Have you, ever, have you ever gone to a movie or seen a movie that's a part two? Usually sequels are not as good as the first movie, right? By and large, if it has a part two by it, it's not that good of a movie. And, and if you've watched the sequel and you're thinking, boy, they really forced this. You, the first movie never really had a cliffhanger anyway. They just made part two so they can make more money. And get you there based upon the popularity of part one. And it's just sort of forced. It's just sort of made to happen. Well, that, that's a bad sequel. The good sequels are like Lord of the Rings or movies like that where they were designed to have sequels. It was designed to have another story. It was designed to have a continuation. So even the, even the Jews during Jesus' day who ended up rejecting him, the Orthodox Jews today still are looking forward to the Messiah. Orthodox Jews today are still expecting the Messiah to come. Now they've missed the Messiah, 
But they understood the Old Testament was a story that was to be continued. And of course, we have the sequel, we have the continuation in the New Testament, and it complements perfectly the Old Testament. Augustine said, the New Testament is in the old concealed, and the old is in the new revealed. I love that little statement. I made that the title of today's message. The New Testament is in the old concealed, and the old is in the new revealed. Now, in today's text, we have three scenes. We have three prophetic fulfillments, and therefore three glorious truths about Jesus that we need to see and savor today. Now, let me say in advance, I'm not going to get to all three of them. I really tried. Okay, y'all know me in the past. I've done this before. I tried to get to all three. I couldn't get. Now, I brought all my notes up here just in case the Spirit leads. But my plan right now is to stop uh, at the end of the second fulfillment. Now, for those of you who are here visiting because of the special events we have going on today, you've got to come back next week. I'm sorry. All right? Now, so we're going to get into these. We're going to talk about these three scenes, three fulfillments, and these three glorious truths about Jesus. Now, the context here is that the wise men have come. They've brought their gifts. They worship Jesus in spirit and truth, and they, they laid down their gifts before him. And, and it says in verse 12 of the text we read last week that they were warned in a dream not to return to Herod. So they depart to their own country by a different way. This is sort of an ominous um, indicator that something bad's about to happen. And we, ha- we pick it up in verse 13. This is scene one. So we're going to look at scene one now and fulfillment number one. Matthew chapter t- 2, verse 13. It says, When they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. So the warm, hallmark, Christmas card scene of the Christmas story now dissolves quickly into a terrifying and violent scene. It's a scene of war. The Messiah has come and the spiritual forces of darkness are on full assault. Matthew tells us that Herod is intent on finding the child to destroy him. This is just a continuation of the cosmic warfare that has been waged between the serpent, the seed of the serpent, and the seed of the woman since Genesis 3.15. Satan has been carrying out a bloody battle against the seed of the woman since that day, trying in vain to kill the offspring of the woman, trying in vain to stop the promised one from coming. My Old Testament professor in seminary, he, he said, let me give you one word that sums up the Old Testament. He said, lineage. Now that's a little bit of an oversimplification, but what he was saying was that the whole Old Testament is about the promised one coming. From the moment Genesis 3.15 is prophesied, There is the seed of the woman, this this offspring, singular, who's going to come and deal a death blow to the serpent. And the whole Old Testament is about that happening. And in the whole Old Testament, Satan is warring against the tribe of Jesus, the Jesus tribe, trying to kill the one who is to come. So angels now have announced that the Messiah has finally come. 
Satan has failed to stop it from happening. But Satan won't stop trying, especially now he thrashes out against God's anointed one, hoping to undo God's ancient plan. But Joseph, who's now pretty accustomed to having an angel speak to him in dreams, is awoken and sent off to Egypt because God always protects his Messiah. He always protects the lineage. All throughout the Old Testament, God, in miraculous and surprising ways, protects the lineage. No one can thwart God's plan. No scheme of man, no power of hell. Now, Egypt would have been a good place to take refuge. There was a large Jewish population in Egypt, so it would have been a place where they could have gone and blended in and not be found. It was outside of Herod's jurisdiction. It was just the perfect place to disappear. And the wise men's gifts would have been plenty of provision for them to have for the journey and for their time in Egypt. So Joseph heads out to take refuge in Egypt. Now right there, let me ask you, what does that remind you of? Joseph heading to Egypt. What does it remind you of? We have another Joseph, don't we? Doesn't this cause you to think back to Genesis? The, the former Joseph whose dreams ultimately took him, opened the door for him to go to Egypt, and then provided the means for his family to take refuge during the famine in Egypt. So Joseph here in the New Testament finds refuge in Egypt and remains there with his family until Herod dies. Now, this is certainly a riveting and dramatic story, but as we've said, it's much more than that. All of this drama was ordained by God to bring about the fulfillment of an Old Testament word. And we have that in verse 15. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. So here at the end of the first scene, we have the first fulfillment. And it's quite a fascinating one. Now you might not think much of it if you just read it and okay, and just go on. I would encourage you when you're reading the scriptures and you see an Old Testament passage quoted, to look down at your footnotes. They'll usually have where the passage is from. And then go to the Old Testament and read it. And read the context of it. I encourage you to do that. That will strengthen your Bible study. What Matthew is quoting here is Hosea chapter 11 verse 1. And when we go back and we look at this text, we see here that Hosea is referring to the exodus of God's people from Egypt. And he refers to it in the past tense. So how on earth is this a prophetic word about Jesus? Well, this is one of those times. I talked about the fuller sense type of fulfillment. This is one of those times when the Holy Spirit reveals the fuller sense of what Hosea was talking about. We don't know if Hosea understood the full sense of what he was talking about, but the Holy Spirit sure did. He, he not only inspired Hosea to speak it in Hosea chapter 11 verse 1, he inspires Matthew to quote it right here. And it's really remarkable when we consider what this prophecy is saying about Jesus. So let me bring up our first point today in your notes, and then I'll expound upon it. The first point is simply this. Jesus came to inaugurate a spiritual exodus. Jesus came to inaugurate a spiritual exodus. There are two points of contact here with Jesus and the Old Testament exodus story. Number one, Jesus is being uh, shown to us as a new Moses. And number two, Jesus is being shown to us as the new or the true Israel. The significance of both of these fulfillments is very, very important. Jesus as the new Moses and Jesus as the true Israel are huge 
things to consider. This is not insignificant. Now, this fulfillment is not only being carried out or, or completed in the physical sense as of Jesus as a baby going down to Egypt and coming back. Matthew is pointing to a deeper spiritual significance of Jesus' role here. What does Matthew see? What does Matthew see in Jesus that causes him to see this fulfillment? Now first I want to talk about some striking parallels and then I'll get into the meat of the fulfillment. First of all, as I already mentioned, there are two Josephs here. Both Josephs take refuge in Egypt. You also see the parallel between Pharaoh's rage against the, the children of, of Israel when he has the boys slaughtered in Israel. We read in, in Genesis, or in Exodus I should say. And that parallels what Herod is doing here and what we'll see Herod do in the next scene. And then also in both the texts we see God's providential protection of his chosen one. He protects Moses and he protects Jesus. In another sense we see uh, Moses, a parallel with Moses as he flees the anger of Pharaoh and only returns after the one who has sought his life is passed away or is gone. So too, Jesus and his family are fleeing the wrath of another king and will only return once that king is gone. But most importantly, and this is the most important element of this prophetic fulfillment, most importantly, both Moses and Jesus have come to deliver God's people. And we're going to talk about that. Moses and Jesus are deliverers. Why do we need a new Moses? Why has Jesus come as a new Moses? Because Romans 6, as well as other passages of Scripture, teach us that we are all slaves to sin. Every person ever born has been born in sin and is therefore a slave to sin. We were in much greater bondage much more oppressive tyranny than the Egypt, than the Israelites were in Egypt. We, by being under the captivity of sin, were under a much more ruthless taskmaster than the Israelites were in Egypt. We, like Israel, had no ability to liberate ourselves from the tyranny of sin. We were helpless, we were bound, we were enslaved, we were oppressed, unable to do anything to save ourselves. But then, not because of any good that we had done, not because we deserved freedom, not because we were well-behaved slaves, quite the contrary, we were rebellious slaves. But then, in came our emancipator, Christ Jesus, who broke the chains of sin by the power of the cross. And he set us free. He has liberated us from bondage. He has led us out of sin. And by his grace alone, we are on a sure-bound journey into the promised land. He forgives our sins, takes the price of it upon his own shoulders, absorbing the wrath of a holy father on the cross. And that's how the new Moses liberates us. That's true freedom. But if we do not grasp the absolute slavery and vileness of our sin, then we won't see our need for a new Moses. You can't fully see or savor the good news of the new Moses if you don't fully ascertain the bad news of being inescapably bound by sin. 
If you don't see your slavery, then you can't glorify the Son, the Emancipator, the new Moses, Jesus Christ. By God's grace and I think by God's leading through the text that we've been looking at, um, as we've seen in Savior Jesus Christ, it seems that this theme has just sort of popped up over and over again in the text over the last few weeks of our slavery. And it's been heavy on my heart because there's a dangerous teaching re-emerging in our day whereby men claim that they are not really enslaved. We weren't really dead in our sins. Our will was not really in bondage. This is the current controversy in the Southern Baptist circles right now about the total depravity of mankind. There are some who believe that we are not born dead in our trespasses. And that we possess a certain goodness in us that enables us to liberate ourselves or at least to help out in the liberation of our souls from the slavery of sin. But I believe this teaching to be absolutely and totally unbiblical and that it robs God of glory. It is an outflow of man-centered pride that doesn't like the idea that we are helpless in our sin and that our will is enslaved. This is an outflow of trying to bend the scriptures to fit into our human logical constructs so that we can make God's sovereignty and purposes in election more palatable to our humanistic tastes. If there is any scriptural evidence of prideful, man-centered, self-sufficient men who tried to put God in a theological box of their own man-centered making, it was the Pharisees, wasn't it? In John chapter 8, verse 31, Jesus, speaking to the Pharisees, says, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham. We have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? You see, these men didn't see their slavery. We're good Jews. We have Abraham as our father. How can you say we're enslaved? They had no idea. They were blind to their slavery. They had religion down. But they didn't know new life because they had no idea that they needed to be born again. That they needed to be set free. And Jesus answers them in verse 34 of John chapter 8. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Free indeed. There is a freedom that goes way beyond physical freedom. Right now, there are people in this world experiencing physical slavery, physical oppression, but who are free because they know Jesus Christ. Just yesterday, I saw the disturbing news of a young Tunisian Christian whose beheading was broadcast on Egyptian television. This young man had his head held to the ground as Islamic militant extremists held a knife and declared, 
the Allah's great and slowly sawed off his head. He was under oppression. He was being ruled by another. But that man was free. And those men holding the knives are enslaved. And it's that way around our globe today. Of course, some of our African-American brothers and sisters from 100 years ago died while physically bound by their oppressors. Yet they were free in a way that their earthly masters were not. My friends, when the new Moses sets you free, you are free indeed. But you must understand your spiritual condition. You must weep over your spiritual condition. And in repentance, call out to the only one who can forgive your sins and thus deliver you from them. But my friends, our condition not only leaves us in need of forgiveness of sin, we also lack something. We lack the perfect righteousness that God requires in order to be with him. And so what we see in this text is that Jesus is not only the new Moses, he's also the true Israel. Israel, the nation, foreshadowed another son, a true son, a perfect son, a son who will not sin, who will not wander, who will not stray after other gods, but who will exercise perfect faith and perfect obedience. Jesus himself is the embodiment of Israel, the one who is in whom is wrapped up the true character and destiny of the people. Israel was God's son, but it was a disobedient son. Jesus is the beloved son of God, with whom he is well pleased. And so he stands now as a substitute for his people. We see Jesus modeling this type of fulfillment, this true Israel type of fulfillment, all over the New Testament. One we'll get to in just a few weeks, Matthew chapter 4, the, the temptation of Jesus Christ. I hope you've seen this as you're on your own studies of, of, of the scriptures. How long is Jesus in the wilderness? How many days? 40 days. How long was Israel in the wilderness? 40 years. There's an intentional parallel there. And the sins that Israel fell into and could not overcome are the exact sins that Jesus thwarts when he's in the wilderness. Think about it. What's the first temptation that comes along the way for the Israelites? They're hungry. We want some bread. What's the first temptation that Satan brings before Jesus Christ. Turn these stones into bread. And what does Jesus quote? He quotes a text from that Exodus period. He says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The exact words that Moses spoke to the people in Israel. But the Israelites couldn't do it. As soon as they got bread, they found something else they wanted to fuss about. They couldn't do it. They strayed after other gods. Their own stomach was an idol. But Jesus, the true son, he lived perfectly, a perfect righteousness on behalf of his people. It's a glorious truth, and it's shown all throughout the New Testament. Let us see and savor it. That's why the Old Testament is so important, my friends. If you're just going to go to the New Testament and find topical sermons to help you live your life better, I feel so sorry for you because the Old Testament sheds light on uh, the New Testament sheds light on the old, and the old is revealed in the new, and it's so glorious. And we see and savor Christ, and we begin to worship Him in a way we never could before. 
It's a glorious thing when you consider the truths of Scripture and how all of Scripture is one story about Jesus Christ. Jesus is the supreme seed of Abraham. Paul explicitly says in Galatians 3.16, and I quote, The promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ, end quote. Paul says Jesus is the new Israel. He is the offspring of Abraham, in whom all the promises find their fulfillment. We are like Israel. You and I are prone to wander. Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Is that not what we sing? We do not have the ability to live rightly as we need, and so we, we desperately are in need of a substitute. And so through faith in Jesus, we are given his righteousness, his obedience. And at that point, due to our union with Christ, we become part of Israel. We come into the fullness of the promises made to Abraham through Christ. The Old Testament fulfillment is not inconsequential to your life. The only way you can claim any hold to the promises that God has made is if you're united to Jesus Christ by faith. Because he is the true seed of Abraham. This isn't just a story. To fill out those childhood years of Jesus, it wasn't like Matthew said, you know what? We're going to get to the good stuff when Jesus turns 30. So what can we talk about before then? This is Christ on our behalf. Suffering from infancy. Carrying out God's plan. Inaugurating an exodus. Leading captives from the coils of the ancient serpent. The exodus was meant to foreshadow a greater exodus. The first exodus didn't deliver people from the greater sin. The greater captivity, which is sin. We know this even from looking back at Hosea. Let me read the text from Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. It says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now let's look at the next verse. Immediately after Hosea talks about the Israelites being called out of Egypt, he says this, The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. So then we have in verse 5 of Hosea chapter 11 these words, They shall not return to the land of Egypt. But Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. Israel, despite the deliverance brought through Moses, continued to sin. That's why we need Jesus not only to be our deliverer, but to live the righteousness that we so lack on our behalf. So we read in Hosea that the children of Israel would again return to bondage, this time via an exile to Assyria and Babylon. Which brings me to the next scene and the next fulfillment. Matthew chapter 2, verse 16. Then Herod, when he, had been, when, he, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then he fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping. And loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. So Herod, like Pharaoh before him, doing the bidding of Satan, tried to kill the seed of the woman through savage infanticide. Satan has always hated children. Infanticide will always be on the rise in a country that 
loves Satan more than it loves Jesus, as it is in our nation right now. Now, this probably only involved, and I say only carefully because this was still heinous, it probably only involved the killing of between 12 and 20 children because Bethlehem was a small town, between two to 300 people. And even the surrounding region there was very small. So probably only about 20 children were killed, but still, it's a heinous and horrible crime. Now this passage mentioned here, that's the fulfillment, okay, from Jeremiah 31, 15. At first glance, it's a bit perplexing. For here, Matthew is quoting a passage of Scripture that parallels the grief of the Bethlehem women with the women who lost their children during Israel's exile. But Matthew's a smart guy. He doesn't just go from Hosea to Jeremiah without thinking about it. He knows what he's teaching us here. So now he's talking about the exile. And actually, this passage from Jeremiah about this weeping over the children lost during the exile, when we look at the context of this passage, we see that actually it's a passage of great hope. God actually tells the women right after this to stop mourning because a day of deliverance is coming. Instead of looking backward in grief, they were to look forward in hope. A day of restoration and hope was being promised. Now, the immediate fulfillment of Jeremiah 31 verse 15 would happen 70 years after Jeremiah's prophecy when the first exiles returned to the promised land. But the fuller sense fulfillment of this passage is now being set into motion with the coming of Jesus Christ. There is a greater exile for those who are weeping that will one day weep no more. There is a greater return out of that exile that we are to put our hope on. So, not only did Jesus come to inaugurate a spiritual exodus, okay? Jesus came also, bring that up for me guys. Jesus came also to put an end to a spiritual exile. Jesus came to inaugurate a spiritual exodus and in doing so put an end to spiritual exile. God sent his people into exile because of their sin. The great tragedy of the exile is that God's people were being torn away from the land that they had been promised. And worse, they were taken away from the temple, the place where God's presence was to reside, the place where their worship was to be centered. In a very real way, the exile was a separation from God. But a far worse than the physical separation of God experienced in that exile is the spiritual separation from God that all of our sin has created. Isaiah 59, 2, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. So what the birth of Jesus signals is not the end of a physical exile, but the culmination of a spiritual exile being set into motion by his birth. For the physical exile had ended. The people were already back in the land. The temple had already been rebuilt. But the land and the temple were not sufficient to bridge the gap between God and man and undo the separation that the exile of sin had created. Christ came to bridge that gap once for all, and so the exile Jeremiah spoke of had a fuller sense, a spiritual sense. And Matthew, by quoting Jeremiah, says that the time to be brought back to God has arrived because the Messiah is here. We know that Jeremiah's prophecy had to have a fuller sense by simply looking at the rest of Jeremiah 31. Let me pick it up in thir verse 31 of Jeremiah 31. Listen to these glorious words. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. 
Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will give, forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. What a glorious thing. God, through Christ, the true heir of the throne of David, is bringing the spiritual exile to an end. And is about to institute the new covenant, a covenant in his blood. This is the gospel, my friends. In Christ, and only in Christ, we are no longer separated from God. And we never will be, for his covenant is sealed by blood. Perfect blood. Sinless blood. It is a covenant that cannot be breaking, broken. By us, even. Because he becomes the covenant keeper on our behalf by putting his spirit within us. That's why you have security as a believer. Because God's spirit resides in you. Your security is not that you can somehow keep the covenant. If I can just be good enough, if I can just go to church enough, I can somehow keep God's covenant. There is no security in that. I hope you all realize that. The security is that Jesus Christ has come through his spirit to reside within all of those who truly place their faith in him. And therefore he is doing a work in us and he's going to see it through to completion. He's the one keeping you and doing so in such a way that no one can ever snatch you from his strong hand. That's the glorious truth of the new covenant. That's the glorious truth of the ending of the spiritual exile. Do you see and savor what Christ has done? He came to deliver his people from the bondage of sin. And to give his people his own righteousness. And thus bring his people out of separation from God. Now I have a whole lot more to say. Pages and pages of more to say. But I'm going, I've decided this is the spot that I want to say to be continued. And we'll pick it up next week. I want to talk a little bit more about Jeremiah's prophecy and then get really into this final prophecy, which may be the most perplexing of all. Matter of fact, here's, a, here's your homework. In the next scene, in the next fulfillment, find the passage of Scripture that Matthew is quoting. Okay, so you guys work on that this week, and we'll see if you got it next week, all right? But what we have here in this text is Matthew connecting some pretty amazing dots. He wants us to see and savor who Jesus is, what Jesus is coming to do, and what glorious and magnificent promises are bound up in for those, bound up in Jesus for those who put their faith in him. These first two prophetic fulfillments, it's all about the gospel, isn't it? Jesus, our deliverer from sin. Jesus, the perfect son, living righteousness on our behalf. And Jesus bringing us back to God, getting rid of that exile, that separation. And of course, my friends, he did it all on the cross. As Jesus hung there on that cross, he absorbed the wrath for sin that you and I deserved. It was God's just wrath being poured out upon his son. The son didn't deserve it. 
We deserved it. But Jesus absorbed it on behalf of all of his people. But there was this glorious exchange that happened. He took our sin and then he gave us his righteousness because he had lived the perfect life. He had obeyed all of God's commands. had done everything in faith and obedience the way, the way we were expected to but couldn't. And he did it on our behalf so that all those who put their hope in him are now given a robe of righteousness so that we stand before God spotless and clean and pure, not based upon anything we've done, based totally upon what he accomplished. And then, of course, he rose from the grave after dying on the cross, defeating sin, defeating death, bringing that gap, that separation to a close for all of those who place their faith in him. So that's my plea for you this morning. Call on the name of the Lord Jesus. Don't be like the Pharisees and have your religion down. Call on the name of the Lord Jesus. See that you are a slave to sin. This is not a minor thing. You're not just disposed to sin, inclined to sin. You are enslaved to it. And if you don't call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved, you will never get out of the bondage, no matter how hard you try. You can come to this church or any church in America every day of your life for the rest of your life, and you will still never break those chains. You've got to have an emancipator. You've got to have the new Moses breaking those chains for you. My plea is that you'll come to the Lord Jesus, put your faith and your trust in him alone for the salvation that you need and the forgiveness of your sins, and turn from your sin. And recognize how unholy and unrighteous you are. And hate that sin. And ask Jesus for him to pour out his blood upon you and therefore give you his righteousness. Call upon the name of the Lord. And you will be saved. Bow our heads and close our eyes now as we close in prayer and one final song. Lord Jesus, we come to you right now. We want to see and savor you more and more. We want to understand you more and more. Oh God, don't let us come to the Jesus who so many come to as a life coach or um, a counselor on the cross so that we can get some sort of therapy from Jesus' moral life and learn how to be better people. Oh God, being a better person cannot happen apart from being a new person. Oh, so Jesus, I pray that you'd come and renew hearts. I have no doubt in a room this size, there are people who are not saved. With this many people in here. Because way, the way to destruction is broad. And the path to life is narrow. So God, I pray, Lord, that your spirit would move and convict of sin and draw those to Jesus, whom you want to draw to Jesus. God, may we see and savor Jesus. And for those of us in here who have confessed our sin and turned to Christ alone for the forgiveness of our sin, may God let us see and savor Jesus more and more and more and more and more in texts like this one. And thus give you more and more glory. And us receive more and more joy at the amazing things that Jesus has done. So God, I pray that, you have, that you'd move in our hearts, Lord. Holy Spirit, move in the hearts of those, of all of us here this morning, Lord. May we all respond to the message in one way or another. We ask this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.